Beautiful. Well, thank you, Jordan, for leading us in our time of worship thus far. We'll continue now as we look at the Word of God together. If you have your Bibles with us, please open up with me to Luke chapter 8 this morning, please. Luke chapter 8. We'll continue back on in our, our series in the parables. Parables, as you might remember, are stories that are laid alongside truth. They aren't meant to be clear, but rather they are to hide the truth in riddles. As a, as a form of judgment, almost, upon unbelief. But those who believe, to those of us who have had the Spirit of God broken forth through into our hearts and lives, to those of us who believe, the parables make sense to us because they explain a spiritual truth or a spiritual reality. As you turn there this morning and as I was thinking about this message and being up here after preaching, for, or not preaching for such a long time, thinking one unique thing that you get to see from the pulpit up here when you're, you're teaching um, is that you get to observe all different kinds of responses to your teaching. Whether it's here at New Community Church and myself or any of the other men who, who preach, there are many different responses that you get to see to your teaching. Just for a, a little bit of fun, I thought I'd come up with some different names for those responses. I've got eight, and I even managed to alliterate them as well. So first, you have the, the curious person. This is the person who is fairly neutral on things. They're non-committal, and, and usually their comment about the sermon is, that was interesting, that was, that was, that was good, that was interesting. Second, you have the critical person. This is the person who likes to pick on the environment, Sub-point C of point C wasn't as good as point A, and etc., etc., etc. The sermon was a little bit imbalanced this morning. It's all about delivery rather and the environment rather than the actual content itself. Third, you have the contrived person. This is the person who seems to avoid any deeper questions about deeper things. You have the fourth, you have the conceited person. This is the the person, when you make eye contact with them, they, they look down at the floor, they, they quickly they look away because they wouldn't want to be the one who learns anything from the sermon. It, to, to learn something is, is, is not for them. And so they, as they look around as if to say, hmm, I'm glad these other people are learning something this morning as they sit under this, this truth. Five, you have the, the cunning person, the one who is always a flatterer about the sermon, but, but often uncomfortable with definitive preaching. Six, you have the, the comatose person. This is the person whose face is on screensaver. <laughs> Don't say it, that's not you. It's happened to all of us before. Seven, you have the, the childish person, the person who loves the music more than they love the sermon. They're all about the environment, the music environment. And eighth, you have what I like to call the, the craving person. These are the people who intentionally gaze at all that comes from the Word of God. They seem to hang on every single word from Scripture. They ask for further resources after the sermon. The pages of their Bible are well worn from searching it and reading it. Now, of course, these responses are, are just a bit of fun, but what they are is just an outward observation to sermons or, or to preaching. But more important than the outward behavior, the outward response, is the inward heart attitude towards the truth of God, right? 
The condition of the heart is the issue. You can only gauge so much from an outward response to the truth. The heart of the person behind the response is what tells the real story, right? Whilst the preacher only sees the outward response to the message, Jesus is the one who diagnoses the mind and the heart that drives that very response. He looks at what is deep down inside. Christ looks and sees our true hearts and our response to His gospel. And what we will see in the parable before us is that Jesus is the one who looks inside. He takes us to the very heart that drives people's response to the gospel, to the truth of His word. So with that in mind, let us read our passage this morning in Luke chapter 8. And we'll be starting reading in in verse 1. Luke chapter 8, and the Word of God says, Soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chuzah, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of private means. Verse 4, Now when a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities who were journeying with him, he spoke to them by the way of a parable. Now the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into good soil, and it grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has an ear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning on what this parable means. And he said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest... It is a parable, so that in seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Verse 12, those beside the road are those who have heard. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear and receive the word with joy, they have no firm root. They believe for a while... And then in time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which falls among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word this morning. Now, before we get into the parable itself, as has been said many times before, context, 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 context is key, right? It's always important to examine the context surrounding. And for this parable, we have the first three verses. We see, verse 1, they went out from one city into another, and they were what were they doing? They were heralding, they were evangelizing about the kingdom of God. That is to say that they were telling the king's message. 
We can see from the first three verses that a faithful ministry is outreaching proclamation about the kingdom of God. So what follows in this parable is a parable about kingdom life. Now, what do we know about the, the kingdom of God? Well, many a sermon can be preached on exactly what the kingdom of God is, but I'm going to try and summarize it very simply for you. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual reality, if you like. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate, he says, my, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is a spiritual place, but that to say, it also has physical ramifications later on. We long for, we look forward for the day when we can physically be in the kingdom. Now, what else about the kingdom? Well, for there to even be a kingdom, there must be a king and there must be a king's people. There must be the kingdom citizens. So there is a kingdom of which Christ is king and there is kingdom citizens who are identified in such a way. And the kingdom here operates on certain principles. And the very first principle involves who is part of the kingdom and who is not. What the question is here is what even brings a person into the kingdom and makes them a permanent subject? That's the question. If there is a kingdom and if Christ is the king, then we're sitting under a message about the splendor of that kingdom and its entrance and how a person gets into the kingdom of God. That's the context of this message, the entrance into the kingdom of God and how one becomes a permanent citizen. Now, whenever the, the kingdom of God is declared, whenever the, the gospel is declared, what happens? It demands a response. And that response exposes the heart. It exposes the heart as to what is truly, truly inside. Let's look at verse 4. Jesus begins the, the parable with familiar imagery. He uses this, this picture of this landscape mentioned with, with, with farmland crisscrossed with walking tracks, some fertile land, good for growing, some each side of the road, not so great for growing. And we have mentioned in this passage repeatedly is the seed. What is the seed? Well, fortunately, Jesus answers that question for us in verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the Word of God. Hang on, let me start flicking through that. There you go. The seed is the Word of God. So the first thing you notice about the parable is that there's one seed. One kind of seed, one message. And that message only comes from one source. There aren't multiple messages, there aren't multiple gimmicks or multiple attractions. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word about Christ, as Romans 10 tells us. There is only one seed. The sower goes out to sow the seed. You don't need to change that seed. You don't get to change the seed. The seed was put in your, ba in your bag by God. It is His Word. It is the message of the kingdom of God. So there's the kingdom being declared, the Word seed going out. Be careful. The word seed going out. And now we are left with the responses to that seed going out. Four unique responses. 
we see in these four different soils the different responses that the human heart has to the Word of God. Notice the first seed, which we will call the sin-hardened heart. The first seed, verse 5. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And Jesus explains this, verse 12. Those besides of the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they will not believe, and they will not be saved. I'm just thinking about that soil, and, and verse 5, you notice two things about that kind of soil. First, you see that it is untilled, it is untilled soil. It is ground that is where? Beside the road. Ground that has been trampled underfoot. It's like the the road that the farmer drives his tractor down or, or the road that the, the travelers use to get around. It is soil that has been hard packed. Very little will soften it. Very little will turn up the surface. It is hard, untilled soil. Second thing you notice is that it is uncultivated seed. The seed is there. Notice the birds of the air come and take the seed away quickly. The seed keeps on landing on that type of ground, but it can't get past the surface. There's no way for the seed to get in. No one is paying attention. No one is putting it in a hold. No one is watering it. The seed is sitting on the surface. Verse 12 says, Those who have heard are those who are... Uh, those who have heard are those who are the ground on which the seed falls besides the road. They've heard the devil comes and takes away quickly the word from their heart. Matthew 13 verse 19 says, They hear the word of the kingdom and they do not understand it. So what kind of, of person are they? They are sin-hardened. In what sense? Well, years of running over the same sin patterns in their life. Years of traveling in the same sin-sowed lifestyle. Sin is very seasoned in a person like this. And their, hard, their heart is hard-packed in this kind of soil. Not even earthly consequences for their sin seem to soften the soil. Think about the two thieves that are on the cross of, next to Christ, either side of Christ. One on one side, one on the other, and they're hurling abuse. Then all of a sudden, the soil of one begins to demonstrate this softening towards Christ and, and His Word. The seed was going in. But the other, on the other side, the seed was stayed hardened. Why, why is that important? Why is it important to, to look at these two examples? Because this guy, he's hanging on the cross as a consequence for his sin. As a consequence for his own life choices, he is hanging there. And the consequences aren't even suffering. He's about to die. He's going to lose his life by asphyxiation. He's in excruciating physical pain. He's probably got a family member there looking upon him. And even the consequences of that sin do not soften his heart. That is this person who we're talking about here. The well-worn path of sin. Well-worn patterns of sin. Very hard-packed, uncultivated seed, untilled soil. The Word of God keeps landing on them, but they love their practice of hardened sin. The Word never penetrates and Satan comes along and quickly takes it away. 
You know, Satan, he never wants people to hear the actual truth, right? But more importantly than that, he never wants your heart to be even receptive to the truth. If Satan can bring a hardened person into the church and make them more religious in their hardness, he's fine with that. He'd love to fill the church with Pharisees. Satan would love to do that. People who, who think that they've climbed to the top of a mountain only to be at the bottom of a well. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, lest there should be any among you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Sin causes separation from a holy and perfect God. There is no place for the sin-hardened person in the kingdom of God. Second soil. Verse 6, we see the superficial heart. Second soil. The seed fell on rocky soil and soon it grew up and withered away because it had no moisture. What does that mean? Well, verse 13 tells us, Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while, but then in a time of temptation, they fall away. So this kind of person, this person is, is open, but there's no nourishment. There's some openings in the soil, but there isn't enough nutrients. What does that, that look like? Well, that person, they, they hear the truth. They're initially positive to the truth. They even seem to be desirous to be around Christians. They want to be around Christians. They get some sort of euphoric sense of, of being better than they were when they confess their sin. They, they get their sin off their chest and they have this little sense of superficial releasing of guilt in their life. This kind of thing happens in, in counseling situations all the time. You share the gospel, they confess their sin, they express a, a profession of faith in Christ and they go and say, I just, I just feel so free, thank you. But there has to be the moisture of humility and the softening of the soil. Why? So that it has the nutrients of confession and repentance in the soil. These people have this sense of, of joy in the moment. But notice, temptation. When temptation comes. Life as a Christian, are we immune from temptation? No. Jesus tells us, expect it. Expect afflictions, expect persecution. He tells that to his followers. In other words, in loving and serving Christ as your Savior, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something about your reputation and your personal security here on earth. And so this person, they have no real conviction of truth. They don't develop any, convic any convictions. Why? Because they don't really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They want Christianity in terms of how it makes them feel. They want this euphoria that comes from getting sin and, and guilt off their chest. They want the security and reputation of being around moral people. 
but the conviction of truth is not going down deep in this person's life. They have no convictions about who they are before Christ. So they will never really believe in Him. They are the the superficial-hearted people. Thirdly, Jesus mentions the self-comforting heart. Notice verse 7. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. So you have some seed that, that falls among the, the thorns and the weeds, and, and as it tries to, to take root, other stuff in the soil comes and starts to, to choke it out. The seed can never sprout and enjoy deep and solid roots. Verse 14 indicates that the seed that falls among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, that is to say, as they, as they live their life, they're choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of life. They bring no fruit to maturity. It's an interesting one, isn't it? That's, this is the person that, that's heard the sermon. But Jesus indicates that certain things in their life have, have choked that out. There are thorns and roots of weeds. The first thing to choke that out is is what? Worries. The simple word here is just speaking of of earthly cares rather than eternal things. The worries here is just speaking of of earthly cares. In other words, they're they're burdened and they're worried about their achievements here on earth. I've got to take care of this. I've got to do that. I've got to have my best life now. I've got to get that photo album, that, that white picket fence house. I've got to have grandchildren. Life is in the security that they have right now. Life is all about the here and now. They're not thinking about eternity. They have earthly cares, worries here. The second thing to choke is is riches, the hoarding of material wealth. Why? Because they like the security of it. Material possessions, material wealth bring us security. And they want the power, they want the, the prestige and the reputation of having that material wealth. Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 6, 24, you can't serve God and money. The third thing to choke, notice, is the pleasures of life. This word from the Greek word for Jordan in the back, hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism. Hedonism, a love of pleasure for pleasure's sake. This is the the love of adorning oneself by giving oneself fleshly, pleasurable desires. That's what this word is referring to. So here's a, a person who receives the word seed, they hear it, they go on their way, and they live, appearing to live like a Christian. God's Word tells them to think about heavenly cares and not about earthly cares. But as the pressures of life come in and start to rob them of that earthly security, they put their hands up and say, well, that's not what I'm about. As soon as the Christian life starts to cost them something, their love of power, their love of money, their love of, of pleasures of life, all of a sudden they put their hands up. I'm out. I'm done. That person hears the truth, but they will not lay everything aside at the altar and follow after Christ. 
They will not die to their self-comforting heart. They love their achievements. They love the things of this earth more than they love Christ himself. Matthew 10, 37 through 39. This is what Jesus says about this kind of person. He who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who holds on to his life shall lose it, and he who loses his life shall find it. Now, an interesting discussion about this third soil. I hear you say, well, well, Alex, at least the seed takes hold, right? That means that they must be a Christian. Well, no. Luke, which is where we get the words in this message, Luke, as an inspired writer of Revelation, all through his gospel, faith and hearing are only valuable if they also believe, endure, and bring forth fruit. And I can give you multiple references in the book of Luke for that. And besides, can a, can a Christian really just exist with no fruit? Can, can someone just, just live the Christian life but have no fruit for the Lord? Matthew 7, when, when Jesus is warning of, of wolves in sheep's clothing, he says, verse, verse 16, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. And the good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruit. This third soil, this person cannot be part of the kingdom of God. You will know them by their fruits. The soil may appear good for some time, but eventually it is shown to be exactly what it is, a bad soil. So you have the, the sin-hardened heart, and we, we pray. We pray for those people, right? Lord, don't let their life become so sin-hardened that the gospel never gets through. You have the, the superficial heart. Lord, please remove the rocks out of this person's heart so that the roots go down deep. And you have the, the self-comforting heart. Lord, please remove this person's love of, of pleasure and wealth and riches. Don't let them be like that because the weeds will choke that out. Jesus gives us three very clear responses to the inner heart here. And all three indicate a life of unbelief. Ate it up. No moisture. Choked out. Not believing. Fall away. No maturity. These, these terms are synonymous with characteristics of someone with an inner life of unbelief. Remember, the kingdom is preached, the gospel is preached, the word seed is spread, and it requires a response. And these are the three heart responses. And they result in a conclusive unbelief. But praise God, there's a, there's a fourth soil, right? I mean, praise God. That's amazing. 
as we, as we look at this fourth and, and final soil, I just want to ask the question before we get into it. Is anyone truly worthy of salvation? No. I mean, do any of us really deserve it? Does God even have to save anyone? No. Sometimes people say, well, I don't like the fact that, that God is sovereign over salvation. But, but does anyone really deserve salvation? If no one deserves it, then what should even blow our minds? What, what, what should cause our eyes to open wide and weep is that He saves anyone at all. I tell you, if this passage were about what we deserve, there'd be no fourth soil. It would just be three soils and punishment. If this parable were about what we deserve and only what we deserve, and God were not the kind of God that He is, and He never moved to soften the soil, there'd only be three soils. There'd never be the fourth soil. So when we come to this text, it's absolutely staggering that there even is a fourth soil. Verse 15. The seed in the good soil... These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. They hold it fast. They bear fruit with perseverance. By analogy, back up in verse 8, it says, It grew up and it produced a crop a hundred times as great. This is real fruit. Guaranteed fruit. Fruit that is a, a treasure to a family and a heritage. Fruit that makes a real difference. Fruits of which the roots go down deep. So we call this heart, this soil, the, the submissive heart. Notice this, this seed falls on the soil where the seed is received in an honest and a good heart. And these two words are just put together purely to mean that it is genuine soil. The soil has been prepared for the seed. It has what it takes to grow the seed. It has been tilled. It has been cultivated and therefore it is good and it will produce fruit it will hold on to the seeds the roots will go down deep everything opposite of the first three kind of soils right and so some questions of the text three bad soils one good how does that happen does the soil go from being how does the soil go from being unable to to grow seed one minute and then all of a sudden be abundantly fruitful. Do we do that? Do we produce this, this good soil? Many a time it, it can feel from our perspective that we do, right? I mean, I go to church, I start to pray, I start to speak to other believers, I start to obey the Word of God. That would make the soil good, right? To answer that, Let's just look at a few very familiar passages to us. The gospel basics, if you like. Let me show you that it is impossible for us to be the ones that make the soil good. Flick over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For a moment, verse 18. God has to be the one to make the soil good. Why? Verse 18. The word of the cross is to those who are dying, what? Foolishness. Apart from Christ, we are all dying. Apart from the grace of God, we are all dying. The cross is foolishness. How many times in your life did you hear the gospel 
before you came to Christ and you didn't believe it. Maybe some of you, you heard it from parents or, or grandparents. I myself grew up in a, in a Christian home. I, I heard the gospel all the time through my teen years. But I was pretending. I was going through the motions of the Christian life. I was a, a rocky soil. I had weeds in my soil and there were some hard packed parts too. I was all three soils. Anyone else claim all three soils? You better be lifting your hand. There's some of that in all of us, right? Good job, Chloe. The cross was foolishness to me. The cross was foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Romans 8, verse 7. Keep reading. Look over at Romans 8. As unbelievers, we have our minds set on the things of the flesh. Verse 7. The mind is set on the flesh, hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to God's law. It is not even able to do so. Ephesians chapter 2. I know these, these verses are, are familiar verses to us all, but it's so good to remind ourselves of, of how there came to even be a good soil. Ephesians chapter 2. I know this verse can be hard to understand sometimes because it's not straightforward, but listen. Verse 1. You were dead in your sins. Is that clear enough? How dead is dead? Dead. You're dead. Look at verse 3. Among others who lived according to the prince of the power of the air, we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh. And of the mind. Every human being comes from the loins of Adam and Eve. You are born with a corrupt, sinful nature, and that's the way it is. Does this kind of person sound like someone who can soften their own soil? Does this sound like someone who would even want good soil in the first place? The cross is foolishness, the mindset on the flesh, hostile towards God, dead in our sins. That sounds like bad soil to me. Because of our sinful nature, we could not escape. We are fully deserving of punishment and judgment. There never had to be a fourth soil. God had to sovereignly soften the soil and make it good. God is the one who draws the sinner, convicts of sin, opens the eyes, calls the sinner to faith. God moves upon the dead heart and the will. God grants faith and repentance. He dwells within through His Spirit. He seals the believer. He sustains and strengthens the faith. He is the one that brings us all the way to glory. It is very clear that when Jesus gives us four soils, it should put humility in the hearts of those who are listening. God is completely sovereign over every area of our lives, including that of salvation. So if there's nothing good in us to be able to make the soil right, then it must be in the nature of God, right? I mean, if, if there's nothing that can make the soil good, it must be part of, of God's character and God's nature. God is holy. Mankind sin. It is offense to God's holiness. 
but perfectly intertwined with God's justice is His grace and His mercy and His love. And God gives us multiple examples in His Word of His character. Think about Moses in Egypt. Suddenly, he's in charge of of two million people. People who saw firsthand the deliverance of God. But he still complained. They were stubborn. They were arrogant. They doubted God's presence, even though God was there with them. And Moses saw that, and so he goes to God and he says, God, I need help. I need you to show me what kind of God you are. If human hearts are like this, that we can hear of your love and your grace and your deliverance and still be hard against you, the only way salvation is going to come is if it comes from you and as if if it is a part of your nature. So Moses says to God, show me your character. God says, I will. Just my backside. Just the backside of my nature. Hide under this rock and I'm going to pass by. Exodus 34, you can read of this story. And he passed by Moses while Moses was in the cleft of the rock, hidden so he wouldn't die. Because you can't look directly at God as a, as a sinner and live without a covering of righteousness. So he hid Moses in the rock and, and he passed by. And God told Moses exactly what his character is like. You know what he, he didn't say right out of the bat? He didn't say, first up, I'm going to harden, I'm going to punish you don't deserve it. No one deserves it. All you ever keep doing is, is, is rejecting me. I keep reaching out and you reject. He didn't start with that. God said first of himself, he says, I am compassionate, gracious, merciful. My love is deep. And I will forgive the iniquities in abundance for generations. How did, he, how did he prove that? Israel, generation after generation, continued in their rebellion. But yet God says, I will always save a holy remnant. I will go, I'm going to keep saving. I'm going to save the next generation and I'm going to do so abundantly. So much so that he promises to send the Messiah. The Messiah is going to die for sinners and then the, the gospel is going to spread to the Gentile world. It's going to cover the globe, all cultures, all nations, all people. I'm going to forgive all iniquities. Fill the earth with my glory. The ultimate expression of God's deep love is the sending of His Son. His holy, perfect Son that we've just remembered around this time of of communion. The eternal Son, part of the triune Godhead sent by the Father to pay for our sins in full with His poured out life. There is no greater love than this. Amen? Instead of having to to hide in the rock, unable to stand in God's perfect presence, now we can. We can enter into the presence of God because we are robed, what? In Christ's own righteousness. Praise God for that. You know what? One word I love that describes God's character, two words in the English, I guess, is, is loving kindness. Love and kindness. And they, we put those words to, together to describe the, the Old Testament Hebrew word group for faithful, undying, devoted love. God describes himself as a forgiver, compassionate and gracious. 
He went on to say in that passage, I will by no means clear the guilty person. So if a person continues to harden against me, I will justly leave them in it and leave them to it. Both compassion and justice in the same passage. How does that work? How can God have compassion and God have judgment? How can God be be sovereign but man still be responsible for sin and rebellion? How can these two work together? Well, the depths and the details of these things we can never fully understand because we aren't the Creator, right? But those two supposed contradicting ideas to us in our finite minds work in perfect harmony in the infinite mind of God. These two ideas can and do coexist. Why? Because the Scriptures say that they do. The Word of God says that they do. Look with me in the New Testament. We'll go through a couple of verses there. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's nature is like that, both one of of loving kindness and justice. John 3.16, a passage so familiar to us. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Most of us stop reading there, right? Keep reading. Go to John 3.17, read through to 21. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Verse 20 of chapter 3. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come into the light for the fear of his deeds being exposed. 21. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest, having been wrought by God himself. Who are we to question that? Remember, that there doesn't even need to be a fourth soil. We are fully responsible and fully deserving of condemnation and punishment. We're born without the ability to soften our own soil. From the human perspective, we're called to repent. But from the divine perspective, God must be the one that draws the sinner. He is the one that must soften the soils. So you say, well, what's the lesson, Alex? What's the big deal? Four soils, three bad, one good. Well, let's go back to the start. When the kingdom is declared there must be a response. When the word seed goes out, there must be a response. And that response will show the true nature of the heart. The heart is either sin-hardened, superficial, or self-comforting. And we're all there at some stage. That is what we deserve. We deserve those soils because we are unable to do anything else unless God... God being the one to soften the soil. God breaking forth into our hearts and lives through the rocky and the weedy soil. 
drawing us into a new life of obedience towards Him. So the questions come. Because we can ask questions, right? Well, how do I know which soil I am? Simple answer. The text tells us. There'll be fruit. Not just a little bit. There will be evidences, abundant fruit. What is fruit? Well, fruit of good works done for the Lord and for His glory. Faith without works is dead. Remember, we are to have a faith that works. James's Chad series in, in the book of James. That's the entire series summed up. Faith that works. A good and softened soil will always produce works of righteousness for the Lord. You say, well, some days I don't feel like a good soil. Yeah, that's true. Because we are still here on this, this sinful, fallen earth. Every day we have struggles and temptations, right? The traps of the, of the first three soils, they, they might be there because we're not perfect yet, right? We're prone to failure each and every day. But when we do fall, and we do fall, our hearts are burdened. Because we know the one that we have sinned against. And we know the price of that sin. The blood of the Son. So what follows is this beautiful confession and repentance before the Lord. As, as soil number four, we long to be slaves of righteousness. There is a heart change that has taken place. Praise God for the fourth soil. Next question. Well, Alex, I've got a friend. We grew up together, both made professions. She's not really living the Christian life. Does that mean that she was a fourth soil, but, but now she isn't? Well, No. What does, what does the fourth soil do? It produces abundant fruit with what? Perseverance. It means it will continue on. God has softened the soil so there's no going back. And why would you want to go back to dead soil? Why would the good soil want to suddenly turn and run back the other way? Say if you have a person like this in your life, pray for them. Pray for God's softening of the soil in their life. Another question. So if God softens the soil, does that mean we're all just robots? God will, will draw that person. Do I just need to sit back and do nothing? No. We are still responsible. Still responsible to accept. And also to go. Does the Scriptures say, go to your living room and make disciples of your TV remotes, baptizing them in the name of Foxtel, Netflix, and Disney? No. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're told to go. We're told to, to give an account. We're told to share the message of hope that the gospel offers. We're told to pray. Pray much. We can pray for the softening of the soils of our friends, of our co-workers, of our, our family, of our children. Allow the Lord to use you in people's lives for His glory. Speaking, sharing the truth of the gospel. As far as I'm concerned, you treat everyone as elect until they die and prove you otherwise. 
Last question. Examine your heart. Which soil are you? Be honest. If there is any doubt in your heart this morning, if you are unsure, if the, if the Spirit is prompting, take it seriously. Speak to someone before you leave church this morning. Humble yourself before the Lord, seeking His softening in your life. To those of us confident in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, praise God that He is a saving God. Amen? He is the one that softened the soil so the word seed could go down deep and produce works for His glory. So undeserving, yet Christ died for the ungodly. He died to draw us to Himself out of darkness and into His marvelous light. How should our lives be changed? Our worship changed out of love and praise and thanks for Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, what a joy and a privilege it is just to think upon you, think upon your, your loving and gracious nature. Lord, for it is by you and by you alone, through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have drawn us to yourself. And we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that be there any amongst us this morning, Lord, who do not know the depth of the fourth soil. Lord, pray that you would bring conviction upon their hearts and lives. Help them not to leave this place without speaking to someone. Lord, we just thank you. We praise your name. And we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.